This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith, and I will be your host. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode. This is episode 282, entitled Exploring the Triad in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. Now, we are continuing our series that aims to explore and to better understand these various passages in the New Testament where a triad appears. And a triad, of course, is a collection of passages indicating that God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are all put together in a particular verse. Now, some people will look at these passages and they will assume that this is quite clear first century evidence of the doctrine of the Trinity. Others, of course, will look at these passages and say that it's impossible for them to refer to the Trinity that was invented in church history in the 4th and 5th century councils. And, of course, it would be anachronistic to read those theological dogmas back into the 1st century letters of the New Testament. Now, over the past few weeks, we've focused on the triads that appear in our earliest New Testament documents, that is, the epistles written by the Apostle Paul. We've looked at Romans and 1 Corinthians in particular. We've yet to find an actual reference to the doctrine of the Trinity, which teaches that the one true God consists of three persons, the Father, Son, and Spirit. Will we get lucky today and find evidence of this supposedly biblical triune God in our study of 2 Corinthians? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is looking at this triad in the second letter to the Corinthians. So based on your Bible, this passage will be the last verse in 2 Corinthians. Some Bibles will actually put this as chapter 13, verse 14. Other Bibles will put it in chapter 13, verse 13. It doesn't matter at all. reads the same. It's just some Bibles have a different way of numbering the final three verses of 2 Corinthians. But they're all in chapter 13, they're all in 2 Corinthians, and they all concern the final verse. The passage reads, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And that's it. That's the way that Paul brings 2 Corinthians to a close. So I have a question here. Is the Apostle Paul, in the final breath, the final sentence of 2 Corinthians, introducing the revolutionary idea that the God of Israel is no longer one person, but now the God of Israel is actually three persons? Is that what we are supposed to conclude with the final verse of 2 Corinthians? What we can see here is what is called a benediction. Paul wishes that Jesus' grace, God's love, 
and the God here has a definite article, so it's the God's love, and the Spirit's fellowship would be with the believers in Corinth. That is his wish, that is his desire, that's his petition. Now we have to remember that the doctrine of the Trinity teaches that the one God consists of these three persons, the Father, Son, and Spirit. What do we have in our passage? We have the God, Jesus, and the Spirit. So what we're looking at here is not even the Trinity's own definition of the three persons. God distinguished from Jesus. That would, of course, indicate that Jesus is not God. It is self-evident that Jesus is someone distinct from God, not a person within the one God's supposedly plural Godhead. And as we look at this passage, we should also point out that the benediction doesn't deal with God, Jesus, and the Spirit specifically. It deals with things pertaining to God, Jesus, and the Spirit. It's about grace, love, and fellowship. So we're not even talking about three persons. It's not even clear if the Spirit here actually is a distinct person from God. That has to be argued for. We're dealing here with the grace that Jesus offers, the love of God, and we're not even sure if this is the church's love for God or God's love for the church. And we also have the fellowship that the Spirit creates. So what does this fellowship of the Spirit even mean? An interpreter might ask. Well, it seems likely that it refers to the commonality or the shared experience of those who possess the Spirit. So what other clues about God, Jesus, and the Spirit might we gather from exploring 2 Corinthians as a whole, which would allow us to responsibly place our passage, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14, in its context. Now, I don't particularly expect Paul to change his doctrines concerning God's use in the Spirit from what we've clearly observed in 1 Corinthians here at the end of 2 Corinthians. But just so that we can follow the rules of hermeneutics, which I think are very important to observe, let's take 2 Corinthians and interpret it on its own terms. Let's read the book on its own terms. Let's look and see what it says about God, what it says about Jesus, what it says about the Spirit, and then we can arrive at this final passage at the end of 2 Corinthians, and we can interpret it in light of what Paul has already said about these three subjects. This will move us to our second point, point number two, what 2 Corinthians teaches about God. God, of course, appears many times in 2 Corinthians. Can't read all the verses, but I wanted to give a good sampling of the passages so we can understand what Paul says about the God, Otheos, within 2 Corinthians. So beginning with the third verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. That's chapter 1, verse 3. Here we can see that not only do we have God the Father and the Lord Jesus, but there is a very clearly defined relationship 
between these two beings. God is the God of the Lord Jesus. He is also the Father of the Lord Jesus. This, of course, indicates that God just is the Father, and God is the Father alone. Jesus has a God, that God is the Father, and this, of course, makes Jesus the Son, and if Jesus is the Son of God, that means that God, by definition, is the Father. So, Jesus cannot be a person within the Godhead if Jesus has a God, and if that God is the Father of Jesus. Moving along, in chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says, Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. So God here is defined as the one who raises the dead, who raises the persons that are defined as dead. They're not alive, they're not living, but God is the one who raises the dead. This, of course, would indicate that God is the one that raised Jesus from the dead. Of course, that demonstrates, self-evidently, that God and Jesus are distinguished. Jesus was mortal, Jesus died, and God, of course, had to rescue and vindicate Jesus by giving new life to Jesus and raising him from the grave. God raises the dead. Now, of course, in the ministry of Jesus, as we're going to see here in chapter 5, verse 19, God was deeply involved in Christ's ministry. So in chapter 5, verse 19, Paul says that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now, some might look at this and say, well, look, God was in Christ. That sounds like the doctrine of incarnation. I think this is much more likely the sense of inspiration. God was working through Jesus. What we can see here is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Himself is a singular pronoun, indicating that the God that was working in Jesus is one person, not three persons. You can't look at this and say, well, God but what we really mean is God the Son was working in Christ. No, this is God inspiring and empowering and authorizing someone distinct from himself, namely Christ. And we can also see that God continues to be portrayed as a single person because he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So yes, God was working with Jesus, working through Jesus, but this God is a single person, described with a singular pronoun, and of course, he is bound by singular verbs. He has committed to us. He was reconciling the world to himself. Paul, of course, is not defining God here as a triune God. Now, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17-18, through 18, we could see Paul citing a few passages from the Hebrew Bible, and in doing so, we learn something interesting about the true God. Paul says in 6.17, Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. That's 2 Corinthians 6, verse 17-18. through 18. So here we can see 
that God is describing himself as the Lord Almighty. Who is this? Well, it's a singular person. I will be a father to you. You shall be sons and daughters to me. I and me are singular references. So Lord Almighty is only one person, not three persons. It's just one person. Who is the one person who is the Lord Almighty? Answer, the Father. Because he says, I will be a father to you. You shall be sons and daughters to me. That's not something that Jesus can say. Jesus is not a father to the Christians. In fact, what we're seeing here is a passage about God empowering the Davidic king and saying that the Davidic king is the son of God. And now that passage is being applied to the church because the church is in Christ. They share in the benefits of the king of Christ. So 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, formally applied to God's relationship to the human Davidic king, is now being applied to the church, as, of course, those who are in Christ, those who are in the Messiah. But in doing so, we can see that God describes himself as the Lord Almighty and as the Father, the Father alone, who is a single person. Now, in chapter 11, verse 31, we get a repeat of what we saw in chapter 1, verse 3. Paul says that the God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. That's chapter 11, verse 31. Again, God is the God of Jesus. God is also the Father of Jesus. Jesus has a God. That means that Jesus is always subordinate to God. And this God, of course, is someone distinct from Jesus, that God is the Father alone. And of course, this God, who is the God of Jesus, is he who is blessed forever. He's a single person. He's only one person. He's not two or three persons. And then in chapter 13, verse 4, Paul says, Indeed, he was crucified because of weaknesses, yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in him, Yet we will live with him because of the power of God directed towards you. That's chapter 13, verse 14. So we can see here that God possesses power, and the power that God has was able to raise Jesus from the dead. Jesus was crucified because of weakness, but he lives now because of God's power. And that same power is also going to bring about the resurrection of believers. Remember, God is the one who raises the dead. How does God do this? God does it through the extension of his power. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is also going to bring about the resurrection of believers. So we can learn quite a lot about God from what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. No doubt there, God is one person, he is the Father alone, and most importantly, he is the God of Jesus. Let's move to our third point, what 2 Corinthians teaches about the Son. Not surprisingly, 2 Corinthians has a lot to say about Jesus and about Jesus' relationship with believers. So in chapter 1, verse 14, Paul says, We are your reason to be proud, as you also are ours, in the day of our Lord Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 14. 
So Jesus here is described as our Lord. What we have is the title Lord being applied to Jesus. Now this is not to be confused with God's personal name in the Old Testament, which is Yahweh. Yahweh cannot be understood as our Yahweh. The fact that Jesus is called our Lord means that he is a title of Lord, which is a master, a superior. And in regarding Jesus as our Lord, especially to those in Corinth, which is a Roman colony, this, of course, is meaning to highlight the lordship of Jesus in an attempt to subvert claims of Caesar's lordship. And Paul probably has in mind the passage Psalm 110, verse 1, to where Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. That's the exalted Lord at the right hand of Yahweh is someone who has the title Lord. That Lord, of course, is Paul's Lord and the Lord of the believers. That's why Jesus bears the title Lord, not God's divine name, at least in this passage. A little bit later in verse 19 of chapter 1, Paul says, For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who is preached among you by us. Christ Jesus, that means King Jesus, is described here as the Son of God. Of course, if Jesus is the Son of God, then God, within that phrase, Son of God, by definition, has to refer to the Father. We've already seen that the Father is the God of Jesus. God is the Father. Jesus is the Son. The Son of God indicates that God is the Father. That much is absolutely clear, and I don't understand why it needs to be stated. It's so obvious and self-evident. Unless, of course, you've been told that God means something different than what is clearly evident on the pages of Scripture. Now, in chapter 4, we get some evidence that Paul continues to express a wisdom Christology, if indeed you are aware of the passages that have influenced Paul's depiction of Jesus. So, in chapter 4, starting in verse 3, Paul says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing in whose case the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they will not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 4. So we can see here that Christ is described as the image of God, using the Greek noun ikon. Now, Econ can mean a variety of things, but based on the fact that we've seen Paul apply the characteristics and the traits and the role previously ascribed to God's personified wisdom, we've seen that in 1 Corinthians, also takes place in Romans, but the same thing could be said here, because personified wisdom is described as the image of God in Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 26. So most scholars writing commentaries on 2 Corinthians will say here, Paul is demonstrating his wisdom Christology. He is taking this characteristic and this trait formerly applied to personified wisdom, and now he is describing it in terms of Jesus. Wisdom was the image of God, and so now Jesus 
is the image of God, indicating that Jesus is wisdom's embodiment. Moving on, in chapter 4, verse 14, Paul says that knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. That's chapter 4, verse 14. So Jesus, of course, is the one who was raised from the dead. And we can see that there was one person who raised Jesus, he who raised Jesus, indicating God, that is, the Father. This means that Jesus was mortal, Jesus died, and the death of Jesus is likened unto the death of believers. Jesus died as a mortal. He had to be raised from the dead. Believers will die. They're mortals, and they will also have to be raised from the dead. So Jesus is not depicted as a divine, immortal being. And there's no indication here that, well, only part of Jesus died, or only the man part of Jesus died, or only his humanity died. No, it's all of Jesus died. All of Jesus was buried. All of Jesus was raised. Now in chapter 8, verse 9, we have what I think is a reference to Jesus' ministry. It's very similar to the language that we get in Philippians chapter 2. So Paul says that you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. What an interesting passage. In the midst of Paul describing why the Corinthians should be financially donating to Paul's missionary efforts, Paul uses the analogies of rich and poor in regard to Jesus. Specifically, our Lord Jesus Christ. He was rich, but for the sake of believers, he became poor so that through this act of poverty, the believers might become rich. Now, I think what's happening here is that Paul's looking at the ministry of Jesus. Jesus is someone who was rich in privileges. He was the Messiah. He was the Son of God. But he emptied himself of those privileges in order to become poor, meaning to be humbled and to die. So that through his poverty, meaning through his death, believers might also become rich. They might also be exalted, raised from the dead, and glorified. Now, there are some eager interpreters that say, well, look here, this is clearly a reference to the Incarnation. But that's not what Paul says. And there's really no reason in 2 Corinthians to justify beginning with that presupposition and reading it into the text. It also doesn't make sense throughout the passage. If becoming poor means giving up being God to become a man, how is it that that poverty makes believers rich, if that richness is divinity? If he gave up his rich divinity, how is it that believers also receive that sort of divinity? That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't logically flow. It seems much more likely, and this is what Paul has said in Philippians 2, that King Jesus gave up his privileges, he emptied himself, he humbled himself, he became a servant, and he was exalted for that act of obedience, which, of course, indicated his death. 
becoming poor is Jesus emptying himself and dying for others. And it's through that poverty that believers come to share in Jesus' benefits. So I thought that passage was worth discussing as we were going to talk about what 2 Corinthians says about Jesus, because I think it's good for us to get a well-rounded perspective on what Paul thought about the Son if we're going to look at a potential high Christology passage about Jesus. This moves us to point number four, what 2 Corinthians teaches about the Spirit. Now, 2 Corinthians actually doesn't speak a lot about the Holy Spirit, so we're going to have to do the best we can with the evidence that we have. So, in chapter 1, starting in verse 21, Paul says, Now, he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. That's chapter 1, verses 21 through 22. So God sealed us, meaning he stamped us with his identity, and he gave us his Spirit as a pledge. Where did the Spirit go? It went to our hearts. So the Spirit is something that God gives. It identifies the believers as belonging to God. And it's something that is extended by God and belonging in the hearts of believers. Now there's an interesting passage in chapter 3 involving Moses and the events that took place in Exodus chapter 34. And so I'll read the passage in 2 Corinthians, and then we'll read the passage in Exodus 34, because it's important to see what Paul is actually trying to say about the Holy Spirit. So in 2 Corinthians 3.15, Paul says, But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart, and whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. That's 2 Corinthians 3, verses 15 through 17. Now, Paul here is talking about Moses and having a veil that's actually lifted. And of course, this is recalling the story in the book of Exodus to where Moses would go up onto the mountain and he would interact with God. But because he was in the presence of God, his face would actually shine and he had to wear a veil over his face in order to interact with the children of Israel. So we can read this passage in Exodus 34, starting in verse 32. It says, When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went in before Yahweh to speak with him, he would take off the veil until he came out. And whenever he came out and spoke to the sons of Israel, what he had been commanded, the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. So Moses would replace the veil over his face until he went in to speak with him. That's Exodus 34, verses 32 through 34. Now, Paul characteristically, when he's going to cite and allude to the Old Testament, is going to draw upon the Greek translation, not the Hebrew text. And the Greek translation, it doesn't say Yahweh, it says Kyrios, the word for Lord. So in this passage in Exodus 34, the Lord clearly is God. It's Yahweh, it's the God of Israel. 
So I think when Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 3.17 that the Lord is the Spirit with whom Moses interacted in a way that required him to wear a veil before the children of Israel, that Lord quite clearly is the Lord God, the Father alone. It's not the Lord Jesus because the reference that Paul is alluding to clearly has the Lord being God, not Jesus. I know there are some biblical Unitarians that think differently, but I think when you go back and you look at the passage, it's unambiguous what Paul means here. Curios and the Septuagint, at least in the passage Paul's alluding to, is a reference to God, not to Jesus. So what does this say about the Spirit? It means that if the Lord God is the Spirit, it means that the Spirit is just an extension of who God is. It's God himself extended in his presence and his power in the lives of his people. And we can see a little bit more of this in chapter 5, verse 5. It says, Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. God is giving his Spirit. He is extending his own self, his presence, and his power in the lives of believers as a pledge. And we can see here, God is a single person. He who prepared us, singular reference, is God who, again, another singular reference, gave to us his spirit. Now, in our passage, passage we're looking at in chapter 13, verse 14, it's not talking specifically about the Holy Spirit. It's the fellowship of the spirit. So I wanted to see if somewhere in 2 Corinthians, Paul would describe this particular fellowship, the Greek word kinonia, in reference to the activity of the Spirit. And I only came up with one passage, and hopefully this will be helpful for our study. So in chapter 6, verse 14, Paul says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, and what fellowship, there's our key word, fellowship, has light with darkness, or what harmony has Christ with Belial, or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. That's 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 through 16. So in a discussion about why believers should not be associated with unbelievers, with lawlessness, with darkness, with Belial, with idols, Paul is describing the community of believers in terms of the temple of God, the temple of the living God. And we know from Paul's theology, especially in 1 Corinthians, that Paul has, on multiple occasions, described the community of believers as the temple of God precisely because they possess the Spirit. So possession of the Spirit creates this fellowship. It creates this kinonia this partnership. It's a commonality that believers possess because they are in possession of the Spirit, they are identified as the people of the true God, and they are living holy and sanctified lives. So in conclusion, what have we learned about God, Jesus, and the Spirit in 2 Corinthians? Well, we've seen that God is the God of Jesus, the Father alone. And God, of course, is the giver of the Holy Spirit. 
God, of course, raised Jesus from the dead, and God will raise believers up in the future resurrection. God is the Lord Almighty, and in describing himself as the Lord Almighty, he says that he is the Father alone. It is also seen that Jesus is the Son of God, which, of course, makes Jesus the Son of the Father. Jesus bears the exalted title Lord, which openly subverts the lordship of Caesar. During Jesus' ministry, he emptied himself of his rich privileges in order to die for others. Jesus is also described as the image of God, an illustration that takes the role and traits of personified wisdom and applies them to Jesus, making Jesus personified wisdom's embodiment. I've also seen that the Holy Spirit is the extension of God's presence sent into the hearts of believers as a pledge of the coming new creation and resurrection. When believers possess the Spirit, they are a new temple community, since God's extended presence is among the church. The Spirit is not described as a separate person alongside the Father. In fact, the Lord God just is the Spirit. Possession of this Spirit creates a commonality and a fellowship among believers, which is a shared sense in God's empowerment and membership in the new covenant family of God. So in short, our target passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, is not a reference to the triune God in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Join us next week as we continue to explore these triadic passages in the New Testament, focusing on Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6 in our next episode. Please look forward to it. Now, if you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us as we aim to promote the sound truths about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. You can support us for free by subscribing on YouTube and iTunes, by giving us an honest review online, and by sharing your favorite episodes with your friends. If you'd like to offer a donation, please check out the episode's description for a PayPal link. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, please take care.